Okay, so welcome. This is our Yom Kippur workshop. I don't even know what else to call it. It's just sort of a Yom Kippur prep class to get ourselves prepped for the holiest day of the year. No pressure, right? I got the next 45 minutes or however long. Rabbis never look at their watches. Um, to get you guys a little more excited and um, inspired for Yom Kippur, just by a show of hands, how many of you guys, just, and just be honest, look forward to Yom Kippur every year? Oh, wow. look forward. All right, it's actually more than usual. Wow. Okay, wait, wait, this is pretty good. Can I ask you, what are you looking forward to? Getting a day off from work. So you're willing to fast, don't anoint yourself with oils, like all these restrictions, sit in synagogue and day and say, I'm such a miserable person because I did A, B, and C, just to get out of work for a day. It's also a meaningful day, so... Okay, okay, good. All right, good. I was hoping. Okay, Perry, yeah? I think it's good to fast. Um, Why is it good to fast? Uh, repenting for sins and... Okay, so we're going to get into that. We're going we're to talk about that. Uh, this is like intermittent fasting on, on steroids. The Muslim people do it for 30 days for Ramadan. Yeah. Which probably hours a day, so I could do it for forty six hours. <laughs> right. right, if they can do it for a month. We can, all right, but they eat at the end of the day. Oh, what do they drink? Uh, yeah, Jordan. I think it's special sanctity that, like, in terms of, like, things that we do in the prayers and the realities, and do really do any other day. And I think yeah. that there's some special exercises that really kind of stretch us out to kind of make it a more Yeah, so I, I want to kind of, like, dispel a few misperceptions and then I want to share some sources from none other than the late and great Rabbi Salvechik. And one is, we're not eating because we want to make ourselves as miserable as possible. I have a friend, he's a rabbi and teacher, Rabbi David Aaron. He said as a kid, he grew up in uh, Canada, and he just was convinced that Judaism was all about suffering. So, you know, and, and you know, Kippur is the holiest day of the year because it's the day you suffer the most. So he took on added restrictions, and he said, I'm going to, I'm only going to, like, I'm going to stand all day because the more I put myself in pain, the more I'll be forgiven for my sins and the more God will leave me alone so I can go on with my regular life for the rest of the year until I get bothered the next year with it again. (laughs) And I'm sharing that ridiculous, God bless you, perspective because it does, I think, color. We don't eat because we think not eating is somehow, or not this or not that. We are trying to bring out a more spiritual side of who we are. We are supposed to try to transform ourselves one day of the year into the, to these angelic beings. I'm giving a little away from my Kol Nidre sermon, just a little. But, and it's not faking God out, and it's not faking ourselves out, because there is a part of us that's quite pure and beautiful. We just don't always see it expressed in its full form. And Yom Kippur is the day that we sort of dress up as angels. And I got a lot of other things in the liturgy that I'm going to show on the night of Yom Kippur that are going to demonstrate that we're not simply trying to restrain, restrict ourselves for the sake of restricting. There's no such value in Judaism. We're not an ascetic people. We don't view restrictions, you know, sort of becoming like sort of that monk on the mountaintop as the, as the end all and be all. We restrict ourselves so we can tap into something deeper. And it's also good to know the rest of the year. You know, I had a, I had a teacher when I was in ninth grade, and I probably shouldn't have been in this class. It was like the A class. I was probably more of a B student. And they stuck me in the A class, and I was having a hard time keeping up. It was uh, in the Hebrew Talmud. And, and um, I kept complaining the first, like, I kept complaining. 
And I remember he gave us a pop quiz. I did really well on it, but like I kind of blew that off. I wasn't following. So I kept complaining. And then finally, I just went over to the teacher and I said, I, I just, I need to switch down. This is just too much for me. And he said, wild, right? And I said, yeah. He says, and then he opens up this, you know, one of the old, like, old school, like, you know, teacher desks, crinks it open, pulls out a wad of papers, and he starts like this, Wiles, and he pulls out my test. He says, Wiles, 98. Go back to your seat, you're fine. <laughs> right? Now I found out, I found out that that test was rigged. <laughs> um, and that he managed at some point in the year to give every one of his students that who he felt was appropriate to be in the class, a really high grade, more than we probably deserve, so that when we complained and kvetched and begged to leave, he could pull the test out and go, get back to your seat. It was brilliant, right? I mean, it was ninth grade. I wasn't, you know. Now, what does it have to do with Yom Kippur? That's Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur is the day we get a, a 98, 100. Why? It's not just for the day of Yom Kippur. It's so that the rest of the year, you can look back at the day and go, oh, that was me. I am capable of living this kind of life. Because it's really not Yom Kippur that's the most important day. It's the, next, it's the day after. It's a week after. It's six months later. What kind of fealty, what kind of loyalty or dedication do we have to whatever kind of New Year's resolutions we're attempting to make at this time of year? But if the teacher can kind of pull out that hundred. That's us. We're the teacher. We pull out the hundred six months later when we don't think we're really worthy. We don't think we really can do it. We say, whoa, Yom Kippur I did it. Oh, that was Yom Kippur. Everybody's good on Yom Kippur. No, but that's, that's actually we are. I don't want to say much more about that. But, and, you know, my friend gave us sort of a mushal. My friend Eli Krimsky is a rabbi. He gave a certain, like, parable. He says, imagine you win a one-hour shopping spree at I don't know. Pick your favorite department store that hasn't gone out of business yet. I've been doing this. What's that? J.C. Penny. It's very. Frugal. I think they went out of business. I think they went out of business. I was going to say Macy's. But Nordstrom. Let's do. No, give me something high end. A little more high end. Neiman Marcus. Got to blow me down. Thank you. Let's go to Bloomingdale's. Okay. So you're given a one hour shopping spree. Whatever you can grab. Okay, you're going to lose all your dignity now, okay? Whatever you can grab in an hour becomes yours. Now, what are you going to do in that hour? You're going to take calls during that hour? You're going to take a lunch, get a coffee break? No, you're going to like, you're going to really maximize on that hour. That's Yom Kippur. Now, I don't, I'm not saying that to freak you out like every second counts. You know, I'm saying it because um, we don't want anything distracting us from grabbing whatever merchandise we need for the year to come. So we refrain from engaging in some of those basic human functions, first of all, so we're not distracted from this day. And a great Hasidic Rebbe, the Kutzker, he said, he said on Yom Kippur, who can eat? On Tishabav, he says, who wants to eat? On Tishabav's sad. So when you're really sad, you should have a problem eating. Yom Kippur, we're not refraining from eating because we're sad. Yom Kippur, what color do we wear? We wear white because we're Joyous, actually. It's considered a chag. We say to each other, good yantav. It's like a holiday. Because we're about to reconcile all of our problems. We're going to, like, you know, clean the slate. That could be very therapeutic. That could be very cathartic. We're going to talk about that in a minute. So, we, it, it's like, who would want to eat? I don't want to be distracted by these mundane activities. Yeah? It's a cleanse. 
It's a total cleanse, and that's the way we should look at it. There's a little of like, oh my God, I'm being judged and being evaluated. And what kind of? I get that, and I'm not saying that's not real. But anything Hashem commands us to do is ultimately, we believe, for the best. He doesn't put us through things because just for the sake of putting us through something. It's, it's supposed to be, and, and, and it really is. I mean, fasting, while you're going through it, may not always feel so pleasant. And, and I always feel like at the end of the uh, fast, like before Ni'ilah, concluding, I always get up to speak. And I always imagine everybody's like looking at me like a, like a piece of chicken or like a, <laughs> a roast beef sandwich or some good pasta. A cup of coffee. Nobody's really thinking about anything at that point. They're just like, can I get out of here? I need something. I need that bagel. Where's the bagel? You know, and um, yeah, it's hard. It's hard, but the now there's another reason for fasting, which I think is really important. And this is the, fasting is the great equalizer. Because, I don't know, I don't have a problem with this as much. But if you're a big CEO, or you're a big shot, and everyone's kowtowing to you, Everybody's, excuse me, sucking up to you all day. It's very hard to become a modest person when that's the case. That's why often um, people who are extremely successful at what they do struggle with maintaining long-lasting relationships. Uh, there's, uh, unfortunately, a very negative correlation between successful marriages and very high-powered executives. Uh, and it's not, it's not, um, it's very easy to understand because, you know, if you don't learn how to say, yes, I'm sorry, <laughs> and take out the garbage and do things that are just normal human humbling things, you're going to have a hard time staying in any long-lasting relationship. Fasting helps that, actually. Fasting is like, I don't care how much money you have, take away that person's food for a day, <laughs> they get cranky. They get kvetchy and they get a headache like everybody else. Yeah. And Now, the point is not to get kvetchy and, and, and hungry. The point is to get a little humbled. Now, how does fasting humble you? Us, because it reminds us that as sophisticated and independent of a being as I think I am, at the end of the day, I still need God. I still, well, I can, I don't need God. Well, where does the food come from? Oh, I earned it. Well, not really, because somebody had to plant this thing and someone had to bless the crop to grow. I don't care how much money in the world you have, you still need the rain and the thing, and like for to eat wheat to anything. And it's just a reminder of our mortality and ultimately our humility. And when you're humble, you can grow. When you're humble, the sky is the limit. But if your cup is filled, there's no room. You know everything. You got everything. I don't. I can't learn from anyone or anybody else. The cup is full. There's no room to pour anything else into it. And this is a. I think you know we all suffer from this to some degree. But I think our circumstances in life can somehow, you know, um, you know, uh, and 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 some say also that we wear what, what kind of shoes don't we wear on Yom Kippur? We don't wear leather shoes. By the way, you can wear shoes. Or you don't have to come barefoot. But you're not supposed to wear leather shoes. Why? What's the deal with a leather shoe? Yeah. Um, it symbolizes us worshiping the golden calf. It's from a cow. Oh, no. Well, there's other stuff we do about the golden calf. Oh. Not the shoes, but that was interesting. I never heard that. What's that? It's basically where manifest, you're, you're showing off that you're successful because you can afford leather shoes. Um, and, and also you've dominated the animal kingdom, in a sense, because you're taking leather, right? And um, now others say on a deeper level that we're taking the shoes off because we, we want a more of an unadulterated reality, because we want to be attached to existence in the most intimate kind of way. That's why Moses was told to take his shoes off when he was standing in this holy place. 
that there's nothing distracting, there's nothing keeping us from being connected ultimately to reality. Yeah. Leather belt is okay. Or not? Leather belt's fine. Because leather belt doesn't... I mean, I'm not saying... You know, I'm, I'm giving rationales and, and reasons that the great rabbis give for these different... But you can wear a leather band. If you have a leather band like I have on my watch here, you can wear that. Leather's fine. It's the shoes. Yeah. Uh, what else do we refrain from just while we're on the restrictions and refrainings? So no eating, drinking, if anybody has any medical Lathering. issues, obviously. What's that? Lathering. Lathering. You mean... We don't bathe. Sorry. <laughs> That's is that okay. Or? No, I don't know. We don't bathe. We don't bathe. <laughs> uh, what else? Good. Wait. So we don't bathe. We can't have intercourse. Right. Mar- we call marital relations, right? <laughs> Sex. What else? No What's that? No makeup. No makeup. Right. We don't, we don't anoint ourselves with perfumes and oils. Right. Um, it's a day of really, you know, being a little... No shaving. We don't shave. We don't, right now, it's not a particular prohibition for Yom Kippur, because Yom Kippur has all the rules and laws of Shabbat. Shabbat plus. You know, it's Shabbos without the fun stuff of Shabbos, like the eating and, and all the meals and all that. But th- those are things we wouldn't do on Shabbat because we're prohibited from doing what's called Melacha on Yom Kippur. Melacha is the 39 forbidden labors, which would involve shaving or putting on the makeup and that kind. There is probably some kind of stuff that you can use. Clipping of the nails. We don't clip our nails, that kind of thing. We're really just sort of disengaged from the normal kind of hygiene. Uh, that doesn't mean you have to, uh, you know, show up looking like a schlump, you know, in, in shul. Like, you, like uh, go back, put something decent on. Like, you don't have to do that, but it's a day to really be focused on the spiritual and not the... Now, that's hard because you're coming to synagogue where everyone wants to look their best. So you, you have to just kind of balance it out. Um... What are we really trying to do on this day? We're really trying to... What is it? What's the focus? We're trying to elevate. We're trying to... A relationship with God. Right. Focus on the relationship with God and and ultimately get ourselves absolved for... The sins, the the transgressions, the schmutz that's kind of caked on the gump. Right? That's caked on. And we all accumulate that throughout the course of the year, no question. What's the main mechanism through which we do this in synagogue? I spent a lot of time in shul on Yom Kippur. There's one prayer, because I don't have time to talk about all the prayers. We talked about a lot of prayers last week. There's one prayer that's like reserved for Yom Kippur that we say repeatedly, both individually and both communally. It's actually said once at night, and then Shacharis, and then... Musaf, and then Mincha, and then Ne'ilah. So it's said five times individually and five times communally. And that's called, um, so we say ten times. That's where you clench your fist and you do a little, what's this? A little, little, a little chest bump. A little chest. Now, it's not to hurt yourself. Why are we doing this? What's this? Why over here? Over the heart. The heart is the seat of the human emotion. And sometimes our feelings and our emotions get the best of us bring us into the wrong places. So we, we kind of do a little tap, like, I could do a little better. And what do we say? We, we have this thing, look at, on, on below. We have become guilty, we have betrayed, we have robbed, we have spoken. Now, if you come here, I'm going to give you a much better translation than that. It's a whole litany of sins that we run through, and we ask Hashem for forgiveness for that. Now, I get this question every year, and I'm going to answer it right off the bat. Rabbi, I didn't do all this stuff. I maybe I did some of this stuff as I look a little closer. 
<laughs> but I didn't do all this stuff. I'm not that bad. So what we're doing, basically, whenever we pray as Jews, we pray in the plural, communal. So we're asking God for forgiveness for what? Not only sins that you and I have committed individually, but any sin any Jew has committed. But here's what's important to remember. We never call ourselves sinners. The, the al-chaits are focused on the activities. What's the difference between focusing on the activity and the person? Love the sinner, hate the sin. Very good. We do not identify existentially or metaphysically with the sin. We, ca- we take responsibility and we say that we've committed it. But we don't say we are that. That's a very fundamental distinction, by the way, between Judaism and Christianity or a certain Catholicism, which very much believes in, in sort of inherent sinfulness, uh, original sin and all that. I don't want to get into that right now. Judaism believes you can sin, and that's why we need Yom Kippur to, for absolution from our sins, but we can't get absolution from another person. You can only get it from God. Unless your transgression is against another person. And guess what? You come to synagogue, you hop and shmop like this all day, if you stole money from another person, you don't give it back, but you ask God for forgiveness, but the guy stole out a thousand dollars, it doesn't matter how much you, you know, how hard you hit your chest, and how many times you say, I'm sorry to God, you need to return the money and apologize. So the Talmud says this, that Yom Kippur is only mechaper, Yom Kippur only atones of Averus of sins bin Adam lemakom, between one man and his God. But Averus should bin Adam lechavero, but sins between one person and his friend, you have to, you have to ask people, and that's what we're trying to be doing during. That's what we should be doing during this period of time before we get into Yom Kippur. And here's a nice little prayer you can say before Yom Kippur starts. If you come on time on Sunday night. You know, it takes a little while to get up in the elevator here, whole huh. building. Say the little prayer, it's field zakan. You can just say to yourself that I forgive anyone if you can do this. I'm not saying you're required to do this. But if you can forgive anyone that may be insulted or offended or something so that they don't go into the holiday with that sort of held against them in terms of you. Now, you're not technically obligated to do that unless you really know the person feels badly for it and person apologizes, and the person feels badly, and won't do it again, and you really believe they won't do it again, you're not technically obligated to do that. And by the way, the Christians believe you are. That's why they, they say it's in the New Testament, turn the other cheek, because you're a sinner by nature. So that's why you have to be such a forgiving person, even if the person doesn't have any remorse, and they're going to continue to perpetrate the sin. You have to still say it's okay, because you can't help yourself. Judaism doesn't believe that. We hold people responsible. So technically, you're not obligated to do that, but it is considered meritorious to do that. And it's also healthier that you're not carrying around ill will for another person. So we try to do that before, but, but essentially we go through this whole laundry list and we say we have become guilty, we have betrayed, we have this, we have that. And that's step one. Rabbi, it's called... What about asking for forgiveness? Yeah, I mean, that's when you, that's, this, is, this is the time to do it, 100%. Now, honestly, you shouldn't wait for Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur. If you wronged somebody in January, I said this last week, you should go over and say, I'm really sorry, I did this, I messed up, I, I didn't realize, you know. Um, uh, what Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur time is, is, is sort of a catch-all if you never did it. You know, this is sort of the <coughs> final exam. Do it now. But it's like the obligation, and then I also heard, I think, in a year that, like, uh, we aren't deserving of God's forgiveness unless we... 
uh, ask for forgiveness ourselves. I mean, we believe that it's a little hypocritical to expect God to be so merciful if we're so unforgiving to other people. Because basically, what are we pleading for all day? Mercy. We're not really saying, Hashem, I want you to open up you know, all my good things and all my bad things and figure out for yourself based on what I did and what I didn't do. We don't, most of our prayers are like, please ignore this and that and the other, and we throw ourselves basically on the mercy of the court, and we ask for compassion. So if we're not willing to do that for other people, and we're asking God to do that for us, it's a little inconsistent. Uh, so the more forgiving we are to others, we believe the more Hashem will be forgiving to us. So that's number one, recognition. You have to start by saying, I did this. Right? Every good 12-step program starts their meetings. I am so-and-so and I am, I've done this or whatever it is. And I know that could, that could be difficult, by the way. And this is why Yom Kippur, I didn't say is sad. Yom Kippur is joyous, but I didn't say it was easy. Because if there are real things that we're doing or not doing that we're upset about, and we're kind of upset with ourselves because we're not living up to our potential, it's kind of hard to hear yourself say that. Like, I'm, I'm involved in this and I, and I really shouldn't be. Or I'm not doing enough of this and I really should call my mother every month, I should call her every week, I, whatever it is. And you want to hear yourself say it. What's step two? Step two is express regret. Take a look on the bottom. We have turned away from your commandments and, fr- and from your good laws, but to no avail. But you are righteous in all that has come upon us. In other words, you can say something. I mean, there, I guess there are psychopaths who do this. Who like um, They'll say they're doing something and they'll admit it readily and have no remorse. What do we call such a person? Yeah, psychopath. <laughs> um, someone that just... Uh, now, you can't really change if you don't feel a little bad. And our society sort of fr- frowns on shame. Judaism believes in a little shame, as long as it's productive shame. Shame in and of itself can be very destructive. Sadness, by the way, in and of itself can be very destructive because it could lead to depression. But sadness or shame that is constructive that allows us to reflect and to improve behavior is necessary. It's very important. But we don't end with shame. We always end on a high note, which is we resolve to do better in the future. We're very optimistic. Judaism is a very positive, optimistic religion. That's why our rabbis, Rabbi Akiva, and arguably the greatest Talmudic sage, always was looking for the silver lining. And he believed that's what we're supposed to do with each other. Great Rav Nachman of Breslov, one of the great Hasidic masters, my son wrote a song, called Nekuda Tova, um, which is uh, finding the good. And it doesn't mean that you're some naive, you know, pushover, that you, you're ignoring all the miserable things that this person does and says, okay, that we know. But you're choosing to focus on the positive. That's a choice. That's a choice that we all get to make in life. In terms of our circumstances, we could focus on the negativity and the things that we can't change, or we can focus on the positive things. It doesn't mean we're not aware of all the miserable things going on in our lives or in the world. It just means I'm choosing to spend more of my spiritual energy on the positive. And that's, we, we're, we're resolving, and we're very optimistic. We're saying, I can do better. We're going to try to do better. And by the way, that's the whole tshuva process right there. Tshuva means returning to Hashem. The whole tshuva process is going through these three R's. Recognition, I'm recognizing something. I'm feeling badly about it, and I'm resolving to do better for the future. That is Yom Kippur in a nutshell. Okay? Now, I want to read something with you. Any questions about that? 
I want to read something with you from Rabbi Soloveitchik, a little psychology on this, which I think is very, very important. Um, uh, let me see if I have another thing here. Here we go. Follow with me. Those of you who are unfamiliar, I'll just give Adam this. Rabbi Joseph B. Soloveitchik was um, a brilliant, brilliant scholar. He died about 30 years ago. He ordained over 2,000 rabbis at Yeshiva University. He was from Poland originally. Uh, was an existentialist, I think, in his philosophical outlook. He had a PhD in epistemology from the University of Berlin. He was just an awesome thinker and writer and Talmudist. And he said the following about confession. What we're talking about now, the al-chaitz, the asham, the bagadnu, I did this, I did that, follow me. It seems that there are two reasons why the Torah obligated the penitent to make confession. Now, I know when you think confession, you think about walking into a booth, telling some other guy you can't really see, but you know he's there. Right, we do, the confession is, and we're doing it ten times on Yom Kippur. We do it at night in Mariv in the evening service. We're doing it, and we do it individually, and we do it public, and we do it communally, individually in your silent devotion, and then when we repeat the silent devotion, we do it as a community. So why do we do it so much? And listen to what he says: feelings, emotions, thoughts, and ideas become clear and are grasped only after they are expressed in sentences bearing a logical and grammatical structure. As long as one's thoughts remain repressed, as long as one has not brought them out into the open, no matter how sublime or exalted they may be, they are not truly yours. They are foreign and elusive. That's why it can take sometimes months or even years for someone in therapy to have one of these breakthroughs where they just hear themselves say something. And all of a sudden, like, everything opens up. Because to hear yourself, and by the way, that's why when you daven, when we pray, we learn this from the prophetess Chana. We're not supposed to dive and pray with our eyes. We pray with our lips. Because if you dive in your eyes, you're just doing this. And I'm not saying it has no effect, but it won't have the same effect as actually hearing yourself say something. You know, there are a lot of things that you and I can think about or read, but we can't bear to actually say. It's too difficult. The Talmud actually says this. Take a look. It says, um, <coughs> Jeremiah... Um, he quotes a verse from the book of Jeremiah, the prophet, the heart is deceitful above all things, it is exceedingly weak, who can know it? Jeremiah didn't mean that one cannot know what's in the heart of others and others cannot know what's in your heart, but that man does not know for sure what's in his own heart until his feelings and thoughts become crystallized and are given shape and form in the usual modes of expression. If you want to underline something, nobody owns a pen anymore though. Repentance contemplated and not verbalized is valueless, that's the line. Repentance contemplated and not verbalized is valueless. Got to hear it. There are many things a man knows about, and then he brings a story from the Talmud. You don't have to keep it, I'll just explain it. Rabbi Yudah Nasi, who compiled the Mishnah, was a beloved rabbi for thousands of students. And when he died, some of his students said that if anyone says that Rebbe died, he shall be pierced with a sword. I was like, what does that mean? He was dead. Because it's one thing to know something, it's another thing to say it. I was convinced after the late and great Lubavitch Rebbe died, I was trying to be Melamed Zuchut and give the benefit of the doubt to some of my very dear Chabad friends who said, no, he's not really dead, he's the Mashiach. And I was like, oh God, you're like, what are you doing? And then I saw this and I'm like, maybe that's it. It's just a human thing. Right? If anybody goes through a terrible trauma, try saying what happens within a couple of days of the trauma. Okay, it, it's, it's too difficult. And uh, so I think that's one idea. Um, 
Take a look uh, at the next column on the right, second line out. Confession compels man in a state of terrible torment to admit facts as they are, to give clear expression to the truth. This is indeed a sacrifice, a breaking of the will, or torturous negation of human nature. Both remorse and shame are involved in the process. And um, you look at, just skip to the last paragraph. Just as the sacrifice is burnt upon the altar, so do we burn down. By our act of confession, our well-barricaded con- complacency, our overblown pride, our artificial existence, then and only then be you cleansed before God. Happy are you, O Israel. But who is it before whom it is clean? And who is it that makes you clean? Your father was in heaven. Only then after the purifying catharsis of confession does one return in circular motion to God, who was there before man sins, to our father who is in heaven, who cleanses us whenever we approach him for purification. By the way, this is the way Rabbi Salvatric used to speak, you know, just casually. <laughs> He's just a brilliant, brilliant, you know, scholar and writer. But it's really, it's just a very human thing to be able to say what it is. And it's not easy. So if you see people sometimes crying in synagogue on Yom Kippur, it's not because they're bad people. You know, you sometimes look over, this guy must have done a lot of really awful things if he's crying. I'm like, okay, you know. And it's always like the more religious people cry. You know what I mean? Like everybody else is just kind of like trying to keep the yarmulke balanced on their head, looking looking at the watch, wondering when this is going to be over. But like, and there's some other guy who looks schleppy. He's like, oh, he's crying. He's screaming in the corner. Now, I'm not saying that's so easy. I'm not saying that's so simple. You know, there was a yeshiva, by the way. It's a famous story. They had these Musa yeshivas where the guys would really work on themselves and the rabbis would tell them like dreck they were and like you're, you're nothing and you got to be better. And it's like a, you know, so one guy comes to the yeshiva and he's sitting in the corner. He's like a brand new guy. And he's sitting in the corner and he's like, I'm this, I did this wrong and I'm so miserable. And some other guy comes over and he says, who does this guy think he is? Saying, he's only been here a day. It takes years to get to that place. You know? So I'm, you know, I'm making a little joke about it, but, but, um, but uh, we shouldn't be afraid to work on ourselves. Okay? If, if Judaism is anything, it's honest. And if we're honest with ourselves, we all need a little work. And Yom Kippur is a day to do that. And it's, not, it's no one else's business. Okay? What I did, what I didn't do is between myself and God. Now what I want to talk to you about for the remainder of our time is how the community comes into this. Because there's a whole communal aspect. You know, some people get a little jaded. Um, you know, Jews who show up every Shabbat, you know, in the synagogue sort of half empty, half whatever, and then all of a sudden the pews are filled on Yom Kippur. People get a little jaded, like, oh, now you show up. Like, where have you been all year? You know? Um, there was a... I used this in one of my openers from one of my speeches, or... Rabbi was standing at the end of the service. Uh, beginning of the service, he was welcoming people. And uh, he says, David, like, where have you been? I haven't seen you since last year. Oh, I just killed the whole joke. <laughs> I don't even know how to re- resurrect this joke. So I say, well, I haven't seen you since last year. He says, yeah, I came to the service. So how come I haven't seen you? I'm part of the secret service, or something like that. Whatever, I have a better opener this year, much better. All right, turn the page, look at page two. Um, so this is interesting. There are actually two types of atonement. We have focused on the individual. And by the way, the hard stuff is over. Because it's much more difficult to gain individual atonement from God than it is communally. Because what do you have to do for individual? We went through the three R's, what are they again? 
recognition. What's not R number two? Regret. Remorse or regret, same thing. Or, and number three, resolve for the future. Resolving to do better for the future. By the way, you do that, that's called tshuva. And by the way, people always ask me this question. Well, let's say two weeks later you mess up. You go through all that and you were sincere on Yom Kippur. I'm never going to do this thing again. I keep cheating on my taxes. I don't declare everything I should. And then I, I'm sitting there and the accountant wants to know what I earned. And, I, and, I, and I'm about to do it again. And I don't. I cheat again. What happened What I did two weeks ago? Was that not a real tshuva? Was that not real? That the whole thing was just fake? Because two weeks later I, I messed up again? What do you think, Nava? Right. You really have no well, I didn't say it was right. I'm not, I'm not condoning behavior, but what happened two weeks ago, did that become undone? No, like you were probably... That was real, as long as you were sincere then. So what do you have to do two weeks later after you cheated on your taxes again? You got to call back the accountant and said, I, I made this. <laughs> you know, and I got paid for this and I didn't say that. And, you know, and we all have our justifications and nobody likes the way the government spends our money. <laughs> so, with them, I'm gonna, you know, they cheat on me, I'll cheat on them. Um, that's a whole other class. We should have a class about that. <laughs> no, because it's one, it's part of Dina de Machut, the law of the land, you're supposed to pay your taxes. Um, there's like a deal. All right, anyway, um, why we, what, what, what am I talking about? I'm so gone from what I. Community, community thank you. <laughs> bing, bing, bing. It's like someone who's like, donut. <laughs> um, so. Take a look at source number A. We say this prayer also 10 times over the holiday. We say the following. Rabbi Salvechik here is trying to prove that there's not only individual atonement going on on the day of Yom Kippur, but communal atonement. That the whole Jewish people as an entity, as some sort of mysterious entity onto itself, also obtains atonement as a nation. How do you know this? Because look at the prayers. We say again and again, blessed are you, God, look at the English, who pardons and forgives our transgressions and the transgressions of his people, the house of Israel. So take that apart for a minute. It seems a little redundant. Who pardons and forgives our transgressions and the transgressions of the people of Israel. So Rabbi Salvechik says the first part is talking about our individual transgressions. And the second part is talking about the transgressions of the people of Israel. But look at the next part, the concluding part of the blessing. And removes our guilt year by year. What should it also say? And removes the guilt of the community. It should be parallel. If the first part of the blessing talks about individual and then community, why is the second part only talking about individual? So this is something very, very powerful. And you need the Hebrew for this, but I'm going to explain it. Well, we are part of the community. Oh, so, yeah, I mean, that, that technically could help explain it. It's like done, but then why did you do it in the beginning? Why did the first part of the blessing have to separate it if we're part of the community? It just, you don't have to say it again. It right, it's already been, you've made the point. Okay, that's a good answer. Good, yeah? Esti, right? Yeah. Okay, good. And... Tracy, thank you. Sorry. Uh, so that the, in Hebrew, there's only lives. There's not like a singular of life. So if you're talking about any lives, like all of us are Right, so that's kind of similar to what was just said. 
Like, like it's inclusive of everything because we always speak in the plural when we pray. But the first part kind of set it up as individual community. And then the second part just said individual. That's what we're asking here, Jordan. Right, so that's what you're all saying. But no, it's not. That, it's, it's just referring to the individual there. It's just referring to the individual because, because the first part said who pardons and transgressions are, who pardons our transgressions and the transgressions of his people. And the second part just says, who removes our guilt. It right. should say, and the guilt of the Jewish people. You could, but why, why is it so underhanded? Why can't it be explicit? The prayers are there to be, to make a point. Kind of have to like read into it. What are we going to say, Jonathan? Is there a mechanical aspect to it that like each individual person has to? What's the difference find? between an individual and a community when it comes to getting forgiveness? That's the really. Well, if each person doesn't ask for forgiveness, then how can the community receive? Forgiveness? Well, you can't. That's the thing. Rabbi Salvechik is suggesting that you only get the individual stuff if you go through the three R's. The individual we just discussed, first part of our class. But the community also comes before God. Now, the community can't obtain forgiveness through individuals. The community obtains forgiveness how? Just by being in a community. Just by being part of the community. That's why, yeah. That means you don't have to ask for forgiveness, but the community is forgiven. You're part of the community, so you're fine. As far as communal forgiveness goes, yes. As far as individual, Mark Wilds, right? Um... That, I have to go through that painstaking introspection, what did I do wrong, say it, feel badly about it, resolve to do better in the future. If I don't do that, I can't obtain individual forgiveness on the individual level. We're talking about community now. I know the reason this is a little complicated because like, what's the difference between individual and community? Isn't, there just, isn't the community just a bunch of individuals? And the answer is no. The community has its own mystical entity onto itself. And the reason why the word shame it says, who moves our guilt year by year. It's talking about a specific type of sin. The word ashma, that's why you need the Hebrew. Umavir ashmotenu, and remove our guilt. Ashmotenu is from the Hebrew word ashma, which means desolation. It's a sin so awful that it could bring about the destruction of the sinner. And suggests Rabbi Salvechik, the reason it's only used in regard to an individual is because only an individual can do something so destructive as to warrant its own destruction. A community, the Jewish community can't. The Jewish community can sin, the Jewish community can disobey, but the Jewish community can never destroy itself. The Jewish community has a certain power that we as individuals do not. And what we're trying to do on Yom Kippur is tap into that power. The community gets a little of a pass. Anybody know why? And by the way, this helps explain a very weird ritual that most synagogues follow. And that is the choice of tunes for the Ashamnu, Bagadnu, Gazalnu. When we say it in the individual sound devotion, you're saying it quietly. Remember loud enough so you can hear it. Ashamnu, Bagadnu. And you're supposed to think about the things we did wrong that year. Does anybody remember the tune? When we finish the sound devotion, then the cantor starts what's called the Chazarat Hashats, the repetition. And then he starts the Ashamnu. What's the tune? He goes, I la 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 la
Listen to the words we're singing and listen to the tune we're using. Okay? You don't have to be like Paul McCartney to like see this is weird. Like they don't match up. I did this terrible thing. I I committed this. I stole from this person. Come on. What is that? We know how to compose sad tunes. Okay, we know how to be depressed. Okay, we can be sad and feel bad for ourselves. Why don't we take one of the great Tishabov tunes where we sit on the floor and lament? What are we singing an upbeat tune? Follow with me. Turn the page. Page three. The difference between individual and communal confession is tremendous. When the individual confesses, he does so from a state of insecurity, depression, and despair in the wake of sin. For what assurance has he that he'll be acquitted? And who can promise him that his transgressions will be forgotten, will not haunt him till the end of his days? In contrast, what's Knesset Israel? You guys know what the Knesset is in Israel? Big building filled with Jews screaming and yelling at each other. The Knesset, Israel's parliament, means the congregation the community, the community of Israel, and each and every Jewish community is considered a microcosm of the whole Knesset. Israel confesses out of sense of confidence and even rejoicing. And he says that he remembers being in Germany and going into a synagogue, in the, you know, in, this is like probably the 1920s, and hearing these very uplifting, very joyous kind of tunes. This is not something that was just, we've been doing this for centuries maybe thousands of years singing these. Why? Because what's the difference when you come before God and say, I'm sorry as an individual, or I'm sorry with the community? You got a lot more leeway with the community. You know why? Because God made a deal. We have this thing called the covenant, the Brit. And the Brit was, God says, if you keep my Torah, if you stay Jewish, then I'll keep you. But who do you make that deal with? Did he make that deal with any single individual Jewish person? No, he made it with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He renewed it at Sinai. He made it with the people of Israel. And that's why if you just come before God on Yom Kippur as an individual, and you don't tap into the communal, you can't be granted that kind of... We don't have a deal with Hashem on the individual level. We only have a deal with God on the communal level. And that's why he says, look at the next paragraph. The individual does not sing al khayt he weeps it. Not so the community, because it does not come to plead for atonement, it claims it as its right. We can demand it. And what does that mean? Chutzpah, I can't demand anything from God. I'm at the mercy of Hashem. Not when you're standing as a Jew, side by side with your fellow Jew, because Hashem keeps his promises. And Hashem made a covenant with our ancestors. And by showing up on Yom Kippur, you're saying, I'm with the covenant. I don't just believe in you, God. I believe that this is the truth. And I'm going to do my best to keep to this thing called the Torah. And if you say that, Hashem cannot turn you away empty-handed. Now, I don't want to just leave you with that inspirational thought and say, oh, that only works on the communal level. There's a sense of that that even works individually. Because as long as you're sincere and genuine, and that is the, one of the most important traits of being Jewish, of being a religious personality, is to be sincere and genuine. God, you know, to err is human, and God knows we mess up. But the ability to clean up the mess is what separates the men from the boys. That's really the, you know, the, really the measure of a great person, is to admit wrongdoing, 
Okay, that's why King David is seen as such a great, great model. Why our Messiah comes from David. And if you read the stories about David, he was quite a colorful personality. And involved in all sorts of um, controversial activities. But he admitted wrong. And he is the quintessential Balchuva. He came back and he made himself over. And that's why the Talmud says, that in a place where a Balchuva, someone who comes back to Judaism, stands, not even the greatest righteous person could ever stand there. Because we have the ability to literally transform negative spiritual energy that we produce when we sin, and we can turn it around. Tshuva is not from this world. I said this today on my chat, on my recording today. Right? Tshuva doesn't really make sense, because, like, you know, Michael, I could say something nasty, and then I could apologize, and you could say, it's okay, I'll let it go. But it happened. And no matter what I say or do, and how forgiving you are, it's out there. And it happened. And it created some kind of difference in reality. And okay, you're, you're, you're letting me off the hook. You're not going to punish me. You're not going to hold a grudge. We're good. But it still is out there. Tshuva, according to the Talmud, the Talmud says that if a tshuva is done, there's two ways to do tshuva. You can do it because of fear. You can do it because of love. Fear means I'm going to do it because I'm afraid I'm going to get zapped. I, I believe in reward and punishment. And I don't want to be punished for the wrong that I did. So I'm going to do tshuva. By the way, it's not a terrible thing. It's not a high-level reason to do tshuva, but it's something, okay? You know, it's like when a parent tells the kid, don't run into the street or else I'm going to hit you. Kid's not thinking about the car that could hit him. He's thinking about mommy or daddy that's going to hit him. But that's what you have to do. I'm not saying you should hit your kids. I didn't, I'm not <laughs> condoning violence against children. I didn't say anything. It's on tape. Did you hear? And it's on tape and Zoom. Um... <laughs> But it's, but you know, sometimes kids won't do things because they see it's the best thing for them. They just fear their parents. Fine, that's a low level, but we'll take it. Higher levels because you want to be you want to be reattached to Hashem, because you know that the greatest good is being as close to our Creator, to our divine spiritual source as possible. And the greatest joy and happiness in this world is not in physicality; it's in spirituality. And when we sin, we distance ourselves. So that's a high level. But the Talmud says that if you do a sin, if you do tshuva out of fear, low level, you convert all sins that were committed um, deliberately as though you had done them, but accidentally. Which, by the way, knocks things down very significantly. Okay? If you do it out of love, it takes deliberate, intentional sins and makes them merits. Not only does it remove it as though it never existed, it changes it. And that explains the statement I just made earlier, that someone who maybe didn't start out so connected, but then becomes more connected later in life, that person is on a higher spiritual level than someone who's always that way. Because you got a lot more energy you're converting. you got all that stuff that <laughs> came before that is now developing into something positive, which is unbelievable. I want to leave you with one last concluding thought. Turn the last page, page four. This is one of the most like groundbreaking ideas I've ever heard from Salvatric. I've shared it many times, and it's late already. But it's it's about the Mashiach, because you know why shouldn't we talk about the Mashiach, the Messiah? How is the Mashiach supposed to come? By the Jewish people coming back to God. If exile happened because we left God, 
the redemption can only take place if we come back. And Maimonides basically endorses this. And the Rambam, if you look at number five there, all the prophets commanded the people to repent. Israel will only be redeemed through tshuva. Tshuva means returning spiritually to God. And it makes sense logically. The Sheikh shouldn't just come because some date arrived. The Sheikh comes when we fix the problem that caused exile to begin with. Here's the problem. Rabbi Salvechik finds the briskers, by the way, the Salvechiks were from a certain part in Eastern Europe, and they were referred to as the briskers, and they would find problems in the writings of Maimonides, like what appeared to be inherent conflicts, contradictions in the great writings of Maimonides, uh, the great uh, philosopher. And, and then they would resolve the conflict, what appears to be a conflict, by coming up, you know, and, and in, that, in the resolution, they would arrive at a, at a higher truth. So what's the conflict? Maimonides said something else that seems to conflict with this. If the only way that, that um, and by the way, Maimonides says that one of the 13 principles of faith is what? Is belief in the coming of the Mashiach. But if the only way that the Mashiach can come is if all the Jewish people come back to God, like what does that even mean? Well, right, but what, what does it mean that the Jewish people are returning to the ways of Torah and mitzvah in mass? Because this is what's supposed to bring the Mashiach. Talmud says that if every Jew kept two Shabbos, rebuilding the temple. Yeah, well, that, that's, that's an indication the Mashiach has come once the temple is built. Then you know this is, this is happening. But what brings it? What causes it to be? It's spiritual return because what caused the exile was spiritual distance. So what we're doing, Yom Kippur, on the individual level, sort of happening communally for the entire world through the Jewish people, you know, when the Mashiach comes. But Rabbi Salvechik asked the question, how can Maimonides say that you have to believe in the coming of the Mashiach? So one of the, he wrote a treatise, The 13 Principles, and he said that every Jew has to believe in these 13 things. God, Revelation, Mashiach. And he says, and it's, everyone knows this line, if you know the song, because it's a famous song, and even if it tarries, I will wait for it. Each and every day I will anticipate, I'll do everything I can, but I believe it's going to happen. The Mashiach's going to come. I don't care what's going on in the world. At some point, mankind will be redeemed through the Jewish people. The world will be brought to this higher enlightened <coughs> spiritual place. It's going to happen. And, and the Rambam says, if you don't believe it's going to happen, then you are not believing one of the 13 principles of faith. Problem is, what did we just say? The only way it can happen is what? Jewish people return. Let's say they don't. Let's say the Jewish people don't return to God. How then can you believe in the coming of the Mashiach? Which the Rambam said, you have to believe it. Rabbi Salvechik answered a classic. He's like, exactly. <laughs> exactly. The only way to believe in the coming of the Shiach is what? Is to believe that the Jewish people come back. And one of the 13 principles of faith is not simply to, to believe in the coming of the Shiach. It's to believe in the capacity of every Jew to live a life of Torah and mitzvah. If you don't believe that, then you really can't believe in the coming of the Mashiach, which is dependent on the Jewish people's spiritual return. 
And it turns out that one of the 13 principles of faith is not simply the belief in something out there, but really the belief in ourselves. Do we really believe we can live this kind of life? Have we become so jaded, so enmeshed in the physical world that we just can't even see ourselves as living that kind of life? It all starts with having that kind of vision. And it's not simple, and I want to, I'm going to leave this with you. I'm going to read the last paragraph. We're going to conclude with this. Uh, take a look at the last paragraph there. It says, A Jew has lost his faith in Knesset Israel. Even though he may personally sanctify and purify himself by being strict in his observance and by assuming prohibitions upon himself, such a Jew, he says, is incongregable and totally unfit to join in the Day of Atonement, which encompasses the whole of Knesset Israel, in all, right, the whole community and all of its components and generations. Right? So he says that even if you lose your faith in your people, you could be the most religious Jew yourself, religiously, individually, but you're not fit to stand before God on Yom Kippur. Because you have to stand side by side with your fellow Jew. Only the Jew, he continues, who believes in Knesset Israel may partake of the sanctity of the day and the acquittal granted to him as part of the community of Israel. The Jew who believes in Knesset Israel is the Jew who lives as part of it wherever it is and is willing to give his life for it, feels its pain, rejoices with it, fights its wars, groans at its defeats, and celebrates its victories. The Jew who believes in Knesset Israel is a Jew who binds himself with unseverable bonds, not only to the people of Israel of his own generation, but to the community of people throughout the ages. How? Through the Torah, which embodies the spirit and the destiny of Israel from generation to generation onto eternity. Yom Kippur, my friends, is not just a day for us individually. It's a day for us to come together and to believe in each other. And that hopefully will give us a little strength. You know, sometimes I remember when I was a kid, I got together with one of my best friends growing up yesterday. My dear friend, Yudi Teichman, listen to this. And he's like starting basketball on elementary, high school, and college. Unbelievable baller, big guy, strong. And we played dodgeball when we were kids. I would always like look for... And Yudi got the ball, everybody was like searching for each other. Everybody wanted to kind of like disappear in the community a little. You know what I mean? You don't want to just like be vulnerable there alone, sort of like naked in front of, ah, you know? And sometimes we might feel that way. We have each other. And that's why we come to pray, even though prayer is a very intimate, introspective kind of thing. I remember during COVID, a lot of people were like, oh, it's good to pray alone. It's all just me. And God. I said, that's great. We got to get back to shul. This is not healthy. We are not meant to be alone. We were not meant to pray alone. You should have alone time with God, with other people, and with yourself, but within measure. And that's why there's a balance. Every prayer service has an individual and has a communal. And we do the individual vidui confessional, we do the communal one, and one should give strength to the next. And through the three R's, go through whatever it is, hopefully it'll be a cathartic, amazing cleanse, right? And at the same time, please God, it should be a very beautiful communal where like when you're singing with everyone else and you're feeling proud to be part of this great nation and we can kind of like just forget about all the things that divide us and separate us and distinguish us from each other and little factions and groups and just remember we're part of a nation that goes back thousands of years and has this incredible privilege to bring God's name to the rest of humanity. Hopefully that'll fill us with a little inspiration and give us a little protection when we're looking to cower behind someone else and not be too exposed alone. 
I want to wish each and every one of you a, what do we wish each other now? We say, we say Gemar Chatimatova, which is fancy for Hebrew for a conclusion for a good writing, because Rosh Hashanah was sort of written. Um, and we could switch it, we could change it. Yom Kippur is an awesome opportunity. Um, it's a really wonderful opportunity to, to really be connected in a way we can't be connected the rest of the year. So I wish you guys an easy and meaningful fast and just a good thing. This Shabbos, by the way, I just want to mention, is called Shabbat Shuvah. It's the Shabbos between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. It's a very important Shabbat. Prepared some special words, and we have a lot of great music going on. We just announced it in the other room. Because um, it's the last Friday night, we have time to do, use musical instruments, so we're going a little crazy. Um, and um, I want to mention that next Wednesday night, yeah, more holiday. It doesn't end. Uh, what's the next holiday, guys? Sukkot. So three things are happening here next Wednesday night, besides one-on-one learning. At this slot, I'll be teaching a Sukkot workshop. So we're going to learn about the four species the sitting in the sukkah. I'm going to try to make, uh, teach it upstairs in the sukkah. It's really, there's a gorgeous sukkah on the roof here. So we're going to go up there and do that. And then uh, my son, Yosef's coming in to be one of our chazanim for Yom Kippur. So he's going to do a little musical meditation right after the class at 9. We're invited to stay for that. Um, and that'll be next week. If you'd like to purchase your own four species, Lulav, Etrog, Hatasim, and Aravot, we have them subsidized. They're probably like 35 bucks or something like that for the set. Uh, maybe 40 bucks. I don't know. I forgot what we charge. We always lose money. That's all I know. We're really good at that. We're very strict on being a not-for-profit. Um, and uh, so that's next week, and that's Sukkot. And we're going to be having services here on the first day of Sukkot. I know you're just thinking about getting Yom, through Yom Kippur, but I'm just letting you know it starts the following weekend. When is Sukkot? The following Friday, Friday. Friday night. The following Friday night. Mm-hmm. We're having services here, and all of our kiddishes will be on the sukkah, uh, on the roof. And then the following week, I know you can't even like fathom this, is Simchas Torah, yeah. which is the culmination of all of the holidays. We just sort of like, all of that energy and emotion just explodes into dancing and celebrating and uh, we got our biggest crowds. It's going to be a lot of fun. Um, lots of drinking and partying in a Jewish way. Um, and that'll be here the following weekend. So, so stick around for all that. Any questions, comments, please? We've got to... Yeah, please. Quick question. Just say loudly so everyone can v- hear. Vidui? Vidui. Okay. I see it in Shachri. In yeah. The morning prayer at the end. But normally it's not recite. I don't know. It's recite. So on Yom Kippur, we say it again and again. Okay. We say it once at night. It's actually twice. Once individually at night, once communally at night. Shacharis, which is the morning prayers on when's Yom Kippur? Monday morning. And then the afternoon service, which is called Musaf, we do it again. And then the later afternoon service called Mincha, we do it again. And then the Ila, which is the concluding service, we do it again as well. But during the year, it's also in the prayer. So that's interesting. Svardim. Yeah. In the Sephardic liturgy, they do vidui every day. Yeah, the Sephardic Jews are the, are the serious ones. That's Ashkenazim. Uh, the vidui is not really in the Ashkenazic um, liturgy as much. Um, it's in Nusach Svard. So there are actually many... It's confusing. There's Sephardim, and then there's Nusach Svard. A Sephardi is like usually a Jew today from the Middle East or North Africa, from Algeria, um, you know, Morocco... Uh, whatever, Iraq, Egypt, um, 
but there are many Ashkenazic, even Hasidic Jews, that daven Nusach Svard, where they use a certain version from the Svardic text, and that contains the Vidoy. So for the Jewish center, like downstairs, or our version is not either of those. So we only do the Vidoy during this time of year. Just different customs, basically. That's a great question. Vidoy. Yeah, Perry. Oh, I, um, at my synagogue, they did a certain prayer based on a rabbi who um, died during the York Massacre in 1190, and a certain prayer that this rabbi is famous for, that he do it at on Kol Nudre. You mean, on, you mean from 9-11? Oh, uh, no, no. Um, there was a famous rabbi that lived during the um, in England, and he died in the very famous York Massacre. Massacre and, yeah. and, and there's a certain prayer they recite that on... Um, on Yom Kippur. Yeah, around um, Kol Nodre. I forgot the name of the prayer, but I remember they did it. In well, you know, center. it's interesting. So different synagogues will, will sometimes emphasize different... Um, the Kol Nidre is actually quite fascinating. You ever know what the Kol Nidre is? Like, what is that? It's like a weird... What does it mean, Kol Nidre? Like, what is that? Oh, Nidre, which is like the traditional prayer we say in Yom Kippur. What is it? What's a neder, Kol Nidre? All of my vows. So what are we doing? We're nulling vows. We're canceling the previous... Can- like, why is that annulling. so important? Why are we annulling? So some suggest, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, of blessed memory, wrote this in his Machzor. That um, that some historians believe that it was written um, in the aftermath of the Spanish Inquisition, when there were many conversos. Those were Jews who converted to Catholicism, but tried to the best of their abilities to maintain their Jewish identity secretly, and they were basically asking God for forgiveness for taking the vow and oath of Christianity before the Church. Oh, what's that prayer called? That's again? the Kol Nidre, the one we, we say, oh, you know, the very yeah. famous Kol Nidre. Uh, that's one theory. There are other, uh, but we also we don't want to go into the, we don't want to, we want to make sure that we don't have unfulfilled promises. It's a big deal to make a promise to someone. That's why anytime you make a promise to someone, don't just say, I promise. Always say, without taking a vow. Because, Bliner, it's called in Hebrew, Bliner. Like we went around our Shabbos table last week and we asked, Everybody, uh, what's your New Year's resolution if you feel comfortable sharing it? it just, but just say without taking a vow, because you don't want to be stuck in case, you know, uh, I don't know, something happens and you can't fulfill it. But that's what happened during the uh, York Massacre in 1190, where the Jewish people, instead of giving up their religion, they um, sacrificed themselves. I think that was actually the first expulsion from any country in Europe was from... Yeah, I think so. was from, from England, yeah. Any other questions, comments? You guys are being very polite. I'm going to let you all go. I want to wish you guys a, what do we say? Good, sweet, happy, healthy. We hope to see you guys on Shabbos. Shabbat Shuvah. Uh, if anybody needs a place, Yom Kippur. I think I asked you before. We still have, you can still sign up. Um, you can talk to Leah. And she will sign you up if you need a place. Yeah. Uh, there's extra food in the back. Cold pasta, if you'd like. Please enjoy. Where are you guys for your pickups? Okay, well, if you're here, let us know. We should love to have you.
Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, good. Oh, 100%. Um, did you, uh, if I'm going to, do we have your email? I'm going out. Yeah. Yeah? Yeah. Yeah. Because, uh, hold on. I want to make sure you get. So you're going downtown to Midtown right now. Um. In the castle. No. Yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah. 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 Oh, marvelous. Oh, yeah. 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 Yeah.